Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 32, being recorded on Thursday, June 16th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, where are you this week? I am at home in Chicago. Ah, yeah, it was good to see you, was it this week or last week at Internet Retailer? It was last week. I already feel the loss of having not seen you in a week. Ah, uh, that's that's adorable. Appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. But luckily, we're able to get together here on the podcast. Yeah, out in the in the cloud world. So awesome to be here. And for devoted podcast listeners, we have a big treat for you here in episode thirty-two. Uh, one of the themes that we've been really kind of working on here in a, a bit of a multi-episode arc, uh, if you've been paying attention, is this whole brands taking control concept. Uh, for the last two episodes, we had Amanda from Ferrara and Sid from Under Armour, and they talked about some of the the things they're seeing out there uh, as the retail world goes through uh, a bunch of upheaval, what's it mean for brands? And to continue on that theme, we're really excited tonight to have Greg Pulsifer from VF Corp. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Greg. Greg has been the VP of Digital Development at VF since 2012. And both Scott and I know Greg as a new member of the shop.org board. And unfortunately for Greg, he has had to work with me for considerably longer than that. Um, But I'll let him Disclose as much or as little as he likes there. And uh, prior to that role, he he's helped brands like Puma, North Face, and New Balance with their e-commerce strategy. So great uh, all-around experience. Plus, I don't know if you knew this or not, Jason, but he's a Star Wars and a Game of Thrones fan. So it's uh, two more pluses in the column there for Greg. I'm a big, big Game of Thrones fan, big Star Wars fan, too. Cool. Welcome on the show, Greg. Where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in uh, what I think is one of the best places on earth in Northern California, and uh, another beautiful day in uh, in the Bay Area. You're closer to Lucasfilm than I am. I'm I'm sad. And um, I have been there, and it's been it was cool. We had a, a VF event there a few years ago. Uh, I think I, Jason. I think you were actually with us in that event. Yes, I try to hijack as many VF events as possible and tag along because you go to some cool places. So, uh, well, first of all, before um, before I, we go to I just want to thank you for having me. I'm actually a huge fan of your show. I've heard every, um, I've listened to every show so far, dating back, all the way back to the very beginning. So I know the, 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 some of the personal jokes with the fire phone and some of the other things that you guys have talked about. So I'm excited to, uh, to be on the show today. Awesome. Do you have a fire phone? I do not. No, I don't. All right, have still just Jason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whew. Thought, thought we were going to have to, Add thirty three percent more Fire Phone users there for a minute. <laughs> well, well, cool. As a um, as a long time listener, you, you kind of know how we do start these interviews off. We like to kind of get a little background. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into your current role? And um, you know, you, you're I know more of your current role. And it looks kind of when I pulled up your resume, it was interesting to see how you've been at this for a while with a lot of different brands and helping them kind of get up to speed on e commerce. I'd love to know how you how you kind of worked yourself into that spot. Yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think to get the best understanding, I'll, I'll just briefly go back to how I started my career because I think 
it's relevant to how I was fortunate enough to land in, in this e-commerce and, and digital world. Um, I started started my career at a small software company in Connecticut, um, and they primarily made three pieces of software. Uh, one that would help with Mac connectivity to PCs. So um, you would be able to take a Mac disk and put it in a PC computer or a PC disk and put it in a Mac computer and then translate the corresponding files, typically a Word or Excel file. And this is back when uh, the world was very much, everyone had a Mac at home. It was considered the home computer and a PC at work. And as simple as that technology sounds now, it was revolutionary at the time. So that product was called MacLink Plus. We had another product called WebBuddy. And what WebBuddy did was it allowed you to download the internet so you could browse it offline. It's back when people would pay money on their on their modem. They'd have a fee to go online. So they would you could download as much content as you want and then surf it um, at your leisure. And then the last um, the last big piece of software we made was a, a software program called desktop to go And what desktop to go did was it allowed you to sync your Palm Pilot to Lotus Notes. Um, there's probably a fire phone joke in there somewhere about um, the similar type of technology. But at the time, again, that was also revolutionary where you had kind of the first, and I think anyway, the first, that and the Newton, right? We're like the first PDA yeah. where you'd be able to take um, information from, from your computer instead of having entered in a small screen and then and sync it over. So I was at that software company and what we would do is we would allow consumers to download that software from our website. And then um, we would give them a temporary activation code. And then, then they would, um, when payment arrived, we would email them a permanent code and payment was typically a check. And that would come in, you know, seven to 10 days later. And we did that for a while. It was a successful program. And, and then one day I asked in a meeting room, I said, hey, you know, why don't we just let people put their credit cards in on the computer and then they can get instant access to it and we don't have to have as many phone calls and as many staff people up for, for pretty basic, um, you know, pretty basic information of just, you know, collecting information and, and reading out numbers on the phone. And I was told that that was a bad idea and that no one would, would enter their credit card in online. And uh, I said, well, what if we let them fax it in? And they said, that's fine. And obviously we know that's not the most secure method either, but that, that's really got the, the wheels of, of motion spinning. Um, and then eventually we did allow for consumers to put their credit cards online and, and kind of the rest is history from an e-commerce standpoint. So from there, I went to um, a, a dot-com business in Boston and that was a lot of fun. I was uh, employee number eight. We grew to 32 employees and then went the way of the dot-com. And as that was going under, the Puma opportunity kind of opened up. So pretty fortunate uh, on the timing there. And with Puma, it was, they had just launched e-commerce and I took over the role, that role and did that for four years. And that was my first, kind of my first foray really into, into brand selling direct. Um, so I did that for four years and then um, an opportunity at New Balance opened up um, to head up interactive marketing and uh, that which would now be called digital marketing. So I did that and I loved it. Um, it was definitely, the, 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 everything was magic, right? I mean, we were um, doing some really cool things at the time. And then uh, I got a phone call from the North Face to go launch e-commerce from the North Face. And that's just an opportunity you don't pass up. Um, so we did that. Um, and I actually still remember our first, our first customer, our first order. Uh, our first name was Sarah. She ordered a Borealis backpack on August 4th, 2008. <laughs> um, and that really felt like the golden age of, of e-commerce to me. That that business um, is <clears throat> the business was and is a rocket ship. And I did that for five and a half years uh, before taking the role I'm in now, which oversees digital for all of the F brands globally. And I should note, as Jason mentioned, that's where I met first met Jason. 
um, when I was at the North Face in 2007. So we're approaching a decade of knowing each other. Wow. Any, um, any embarrassing stories you can tell us about Jason? Um, no, I, I know he is a, he and I both enjoy iced coffee quite a bit. So if you're in a meeting with Jason, he will, um, this is what a nice guy he is. He will proactively buy you an iced coffee, even if he doesn't know you need one. Um, prior to meeting, he'll come in and, and he knows we know how we, we know how we like our coffee. So it's a, it's a nice, just goes to show you what a nice guy he is. Cool. It'd be funny if they uh, still had web buddy, imagine the size of the hard drive it would take to download the internet. The, uh, the, you know, the positioning of being able to browse the web online uh, while I'll browse the web offline while you're on a plane still appeals to me today because um, GoGo wireless internet or GoGo in-flight internet is about as slow as a 14.4 boat bottom. Yeah, yeah, I feel your pain there. That's actually our next guest, so that may be awkward now. I was, I, you know, <laughs> for a second I paused. I'm like, oh, man, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. But. No, no, no. I'm totally teasing you. I do have to tell you, though, that I just did an upgrade to my MacLink Plus, and they still made me fax in my credit card, which I'm not sure was PCI compliant. Well, it's sitting on, it's just sitting on a, uh, a fax machine over the weekend, so I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, totally cool, because everyone hires yeah. really trustworthy janitors. <laughs> exactly. Greg, before we go too much further, not every listener may be familiar with VF Corp, although obviously they're going to be familiar with a lot of your brands. Can you give us the the bullet on who VF Corp is? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so VF has a diverse diverse portfolio of thirty brands. Um, the portfolio, if you think about the portfolio, it's very much how you would ideally want to manage your own stock portfolio. And what I mean is that. We have brands um, at different price points and, and different consumers, different channels of distribution, uh, and we trade in over 150 countries in the world. We have 63,000 associates. Um, our three biggest brands are the North Face Vans and Timberland, but we also um, we also own Wrangler, Lee, Nautica, Reef, Splendid, Seven Roll Mankind, Lucy, Jansport. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of brands. Um, we make the baseball uniforms for major league baseball. We make TSA's uniforms. So it's, uh, very diverse. And as you can imagine with that diversity, um, of the portfolio, the spectrum of what we work on is, is really broad, but it's exciting. It's, it's everything from, um, you know, from governance of our new global digital platform that we're rolling out. And we have, um, 10 brands on it. Now Timberland in Europe went live today, actually this morning, and that governance helps with um, basically it's, it's capability governance of who kind of easily like who gets what when, right, from a governance standpoint. But all the way through to that, what's that next immersive digital experience, you know, things like virtual reality um, and then really everything in between. Um, you know, it's uh, it's like I said, the spectrum, the spectrum is really broad. Um, and because that the, the portfolio of brands are so diverse and that we trade in so many different regions, it's paramount for us. To think about data as really the foundation data and, um, you know, consumer centric best practice as really establishing the foundation for us to work with with all of these brands. So we're, we're bringing the most value to them. Cool. That's a must be an awesome 
to be able to have so many brands kind of to, to work with and, and such a variety too. Um, well, as a listener, you know, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show if we didn't kind of start out with uh, talking about Amazon. So they're, they're obviously the 800 pound gorilla out in retail. Uh, every brand I talked to, I was just, as I mentioned at the internet retailer show, and we probably had 60 or 70% brands in this Amazon workshop I do, which has been amazing. It was, it was zero like two years ago. So it's definitely top of mind with brands. And even just this week, we had that interesting piece in the wall street journal that talked about friction between Procter and Gamble and Walmart, which is just kind of, that's yeah. not Amazon, but it's kind of this, there's always this friction between brands and retailers and, and you know, 90% yeah. of the time everything goes well. So it just comes up a lot with Amazon. would love to hear what, you know, how do you guys think about Amazon and um, any other insights you have there? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, like I said, I, I've listened to every episode you guys have had, and I think all the episodes have been great. But I think your Amazon um, episode, I think maybe six episodes ago, um, or, or roughly around there, was your best one. Um, it's a it's a very interesting topic for us. It's uh, certainly top of mind. Um, I, I'd like to start out too by saying that, uh, like probably everyone who listens to your show, or almost everyone in America now, I've been an Amazon consumer since 1997. Um, I think they've done a lot of good for the industry. Um, up to this point, but I think they've reached such a scale um, that any decision they make has really wide and deeply impactful consequences. Some, some intended, right? And I think some unintended. And then if you even, I mean, even referencing the letter that you guys talked about, that 1997 letter where, um, you know, they look at, if you read between the lines, you know, they're looking at profitability differently as it relates to payback. Um, one of the things that VF is really good at is VF is good at, um, you know, assessing opportunity and looking where, um, you know, the, the best opportunities for um, one, creating a great consumer experience. But but how do we how do we, um, you know, give profitability and, 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 and drive overall um, TSR for our shareholders? And I think when you look about look at how Amazon looks at, at profitability, it puts a lot of pressure on their competition to compete when they don't have that same scale to leverage. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, the, the, the cherry on top is that they're all the while they're training consumers' expectations on what e-commerce should be. So, knowing you know, knowing these things going in from a VF standpoint, as it relates to VF, and this is kind of as of now, we've allowed our brands that if they want to sell on Amazon, they can. So it's a it's a brand by brand decision, and some of our brands do, and and some of our brands don't. And an example of a brand who does is Timberland, who I mentioned earlier. Um, they sell on Amazon, but a brand like Vans does not. So as we, um, like I said, we have, we have, you know, brands who do and brands who don't, we learn from the brands who are on the Amazon platform, <clears throat> excuse me, which helps form, helps us formulate our strategy. Um, but right now it's, it's, it's an active, it's an active topic. So I'll, I'll kind of crystal ball some things that I'll be clear that, that this is, um, I'm not saying that all brands will sell on Amazon, but I would say that if we did, we would, it would need to be on our terms. Um, you know, we would look to probably create differentiated experiences versus other channels to protect the channel element of things. And then, um, you know, selfishly, if you're looking at it, um, I, you know, looking at it, let's look at prefer for our own businesses to be our own e-commerce businesses to be, you know, hundred percent optimized prior to us. Um, you know, expanding any relationship there. These are these are crystal ball things. These aren't things that I'm saying we're we're going to do, but these are things that we we think about. Mm-hmm. It's certainly hard to to bet against them. Um, you know, they continue to win, and um, you know they you know good for them. They 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 certainly put the consumer first, and you have to give them credit for that. For for the brands that don't sell on Amazon, do they get frustrated with kind of some of the third parties that do sell their stuff there and? 
Um, you know, there, yeah, there's a, a lot of people that kind of have, there's these enforcement agencies that'll go out there and they track how the product leaked out and all this stuff. Do you guys, uh, do they, do they swing as far on that side of the pendulum as well? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So North Face, as an example, our, our North Face brand is not selling Amazon, but there's plenty of North Face product on Amazon. Um, it's, it's something that we look at. Um, it's really difficult to track it all that, you know, people get, people can get pretty sophisticated on how they get product, um, and set up these, you know, either affiliate relationships or, you know, kind of startup businesses where they can open up an Amazon shop and, and sell product that they're either getting, um, either through the proper channel from us or through maybe a gray market channel. But we look at that. Um, we look at that quite a bit. We haven't spent a ton of time um, actively cleaning that up, um, but we certainly monitor it right now. Mm-hmm. Cool. And one follow-up question there, Greg. So when you talk about some of the brands that do sell on Amazon, I'm assuming that's all one-piece sales. So you're acting as a traditional wholesaler and selling those goods to Amazon and they're reselling them? Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. So it's it's one it's one P. We have looked at... Um, like I said, we spend a lot of time on this and we have looked at other marketplace relationships with Amazon. Um, we haven't pulled the trigger on any, any of those yet. Um, so right now it's very much a traditional, um, kind of a traditional wholesale, a wholesale buy. Gotcha. Do you, so I'll have a question for you guys. So do you think that, um, knowing what you know about Amazon and all the the data that's out there that says they're going to be the number one apparel retailer in the world, what do you think about, what do you think about hearing something like that? So I'm, I'm kind of squarely in the, if you're a brand, um, I think it makes a ton of sense to sell on Amazon. Um, most brands would prefer to do 3P because they can control the price. Um, and where, you know, the, the biggest negative with 1P is if you do have a premium brand, like take a North Face and you guys have done a great job, the jacket's always, you know, $199 everywhere or whatever. Um, you know, you will find that Amazon very, you know, can be aggressive on lowering the prices. Now they they always have a reason, and um, you know it's usually in reaction to something going on out in the market they see. But you know, as as a brand, it, it's tough to kind of have that that price erosion. So um, it, it is tricky. It's a little bit of a slippery slope. I, I do think at some point, uh, you know, it, Amazon becomes so big you really don't have a choice. But um, you know, we'll, we'll have to kind of wait and see when that is. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I, I don't disagree with that. I wonder too, if you look at um, how Amazon, what Amazon does now and are they really, you know, are they a threat to brands or are they a, are they a threat to other wholesale retailers? Um, you know, our, thankfully, I mean, we, we're a public company and we report our earnings and our earnings have been, have been really good. And Amazon's earnings have also been really good, but you see, you know, um, you know, the sports authority and sports chalet and, and these other wholesale retailers uh, unable to keep up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the multi-brand retailer is definitely going to be under pressure from Amazon, and that'll be the first domino to fall in this whole thing. You know, I, I think is it a, are they a threat to brands from distribution? Yes, but you know, the other threat is private label, and you know, I, I think private label is going to pick off a uh, you know a non-brand sensitive kind of consumer who's probably not your customer. So just just like you face tons of that kind of stuff today it, it, it'll just be you know amazon basics jacket kind of thing versus yeah versus north face or amazon basic shoes if they ever got into it something like that yeah yeah i know that i that makes sense and, and i think too that really speaks to 
you know, the importance of our own business and being able to, to create great experiences and, and, and have content to justify price points uh, and tell brand stories, because I think that's, you know, private label, you're going to, you're never going to, you're never going to reach everyone. And I'm sure if Amazon came up with a private label jacket, they're going to appeal to people who want just a, maybe a, a black jacket. But I think the, the big benefit to the North Face is the heritage and the quality, um, you know, and the ability to, to use it to get outside and explore. And that's really the, I think that's one of our big responsibilities when I think about our digital roles at VF is that, you know, we have a responsibility. Um, you know, I talked about a big spectrum of what we work on and I talked about data, but I think we have a big, I know we have a big responsibility when it comes to using content to tell our story. Um, and, um, you know, our own properties are, are by and large the, the most important areas for us to do that. Yeah. And there, there's increasingly intellectual property in these, these items that make it, you know, it, the really distance it from kind of a private label that's not going to be able to afford that kind of R and D into, you know, latest and greatest fabrics. And, you know, the North face, for example, is amazing. It's like the light, they're such lightweight jackets now and they're, you know, warmer than the jacket I've gotten three years ago. That was, you know, six inches wide. So it's, it's amazing what's going on there with, with all that kind of, you know, fabric science. Yeah, absolutely. Fabric and insulation. It's, it's really the, it's all the warmth without the weight. And yeah. uh, it's a, it's, it's really what, it's really that innovation piece. Um, if you're, especially if you're an adventurer and you're, you're, if you're, even if you're traveling, right, you don't have to have these big, bulky, big, big bulky things that, um, that weigh you down. You can perform better in it. If you're, out, you know, skiing or, or running, um, you know, and, and, and quite simply, if you're on a plane, you don't have to have a big bulky jacket. You can have something that will uh, keep you warm as you're traveling from place to place. I'm going to split the baby with you guys. I agree with the examples you're using. To me, it makes sense that North Face would be on Amazon and a bunch of the VF brands are uh, traditional wholesalers. And so they're selling through a bunch of retail channels. If you're going to do that, Amazon is just potentially a, a higher risk, higher reward version of many of those other retailers. So I know VF, you know, sells through premium retailers like Nordstrom's and they sell through mass merchants like Walmart. Amazon is just another partner in that ecosystem. And they don't, the, the pros and cons aren't fundamentally different than they are at Walmart or Nordstrom's for that matter. But where I would think harder about selling to Amazon is if, I were a pure vertically integrated brand that made and sold all my own product direct. Greg, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but I actually think in the portfolio, there are some VF brands that are closer to that model where you can. There are. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. those brands, so like Lucy comes to mind, for example. Nice job. That's a good, that's a good one. Yeah. Nice. I would be thinking a lot harder about losing my direct to consumer exclusivity by selling Lucy on Amazon than I would. North Face. And because you have so many wholesale partners with North Face, that North Face stuff is going to show up on Amazon whether you want it to or not. And so you might as well control Mm -hmm. it and profit from it. Yeah, no, I I don't. It's like I said, it's a it's a topic that we that we debate quite a bit internally and and who knows where we'll go in the future. Um, You know, it's funny, though, when when we think about it and this isn't just a BF, this is when I talk to people outside of of BF who don't also don't sell on Amazon, but work in apparel. Their concern is that the consumer's expectation or the the, the consumer's um, what their perception will be from your brand. Right. If you're selling Amazon. And I think a lot of where that comes from is it comes from that concern comes from internal brand teams. But if you 
if you look at the data and you start to ask the you know the core consumer, would you have an would you have a negative perception of a brand um, if they sold on Amazon? I've seen some of that data, and the data suggests that they don't right that they don't have a they wouldn't have a negative impact um, if your brand sells there. So those are things that we look at as well. Um, you know, it, it's it's easy to get caught into what we think, but we always one of the things the other things that we always try to do is go back to what does the consumer think and what does the consumer want. So um, those are you, you have to balance you have to balance your um, you know your channel strategy, but at the same time, it's you know we need to be as consumer centric as possible. And if the consumer expects you to be there, um, and then you combine that with all of the data um, out there that you know people start their their shopping experience. I think there's something in says that, you know, more people start their shopping experience on Amazon than they do on Google. Um, they may not buy there, but they shop there. They start their experience there. Um, you know, it's hard to ignore the the mass and the scale and the growth that, that Amazon's having. Yeah. It's funny. You, you bring up a great example because there's a, a thought experiment I'll, I'll bring up with a lot of clients and I'll, I'll bring it up for you in a second, but I, I know VF is uh, very quantitative. So I know like you guys tend to answer questions based on the fact that you've actually gone out and done consumer research and have a good, pretty good handle on how consumers really respond. Um, but this whole notion of like what kind of retail outlets create a negative perception for your brand, I'm always amused by which retail outlets which brands consider negative, right? So you go to any brand and you say, hey, Walmart, Amazon, eBay, Tmall. Mm-hmm. Which ones are premium uh, retailers that you'd be happy to do business with and which ones would you never sell on because you feel like it would create brand erosion? And the reason I say it's funny is because the answers vary wildly. And then the other thing I don't get is a lot of the brands out there, not not just the VF ones, but a lot of the brands also have like these outlets where it's, you know, 50% off kind of a thing. So so it's <laughs> almost kind of, you know, it's it's a little bit ironic that they worry about this brand erosion when they're at the outlet to me erodes it more than a lot of these other channels possibly could. Yeah. And even, you know, Scott, to that point, um, even, even, so we, you know, brands have owned outlets where they'll do that, but then they'll sell to, you know, other, other mass department type discounters, right. That are, you know, the, the, the TJ Maxx and, and Marshall's and, and others. And that tends to be, um, seen as okay versus, you know, to, to the point Jason made about the perception of the brand at, at say, you know, Tmall or Amazon. Yep. The Amazon question is almost its own version of a channel conflict that comes up with a lot of accounts, but the more generic version of channel conflict, particularly with a brand is I imagine early on that it was controversial for VF brands to sell direct to consumer at all. My sense is that you were a wholesaler long before you started selling direct to consumer, and I have it on good authority that direct to consumer has been a a great growth area for you over the last number of years. Were you at VF when they were making those direct to consumer decisions, and were those hard? And do they still come up, or is yeah, it sort of a totally? Because I actually love this question. So um, if you look at, uh, we talked about my experience, and obviously based on the background. It's something I've had a lot of experience with at, at Puma, at New Balance, at North Face, and even at VF. Um, I'd like to, I feel like I need to caveat this, that we want to win in all channels. It's very important to us. Um, but, and, and the other, you know, we're, you know, we're a public company and these are public, you know, public information out there that majority of our business does come through um, 
our wholesale channel. Although again, if you look on our, or if you listen to our earnings calls and you go on our, on our VF website, you'll see that, you know, a lot of the growth and the profitability for the business going forward is through that own channel. So to Jason, to your point, you know, how do you balance that? Um, before I, before I tell you what I, my perception of it is, I'll tell you a quick, funny side story. When I started um, at North Face, uh, my first sales meeting that I went to, and, and North Face is a sales manager in Lake Tahoe. It's, it's like a love letter to the brand. It's an amazing experience. And I was in the elevator, and I, was, I got in the elevator with um, the VP of sales. He's a great guy, one of, my, one of my best friends here. And he said to me as we get out of the elevator, he's like, if anyone asks, just say you work in IT. So don't say you're, you're going to be commerce or work so direct. So um, I thought that was funny. And that was kind of the mindset at the time. Um, you know, that mindset has, uh, has changed, has changed quite a bit. And I would say, again, based on, um, you know, based on experience of that I've had up to this point, I, I feel like I could break it in my opinion. And I would break it into three, really three parts. If you want to manage, help manage channel conflict. I think first and foremost, and it's very, very simple, is it's just do what's best for the consumer, right? So going back to, um, you know, going back to your point about, um, you know, we're, we're very, very, very much into the data and we're very, very much into ensuring that we stay as close to the consumer as possible and vet anything out, um, um, both quantitative, qualitative, um, based on past experience, you know, what does the consumer think? So we, we do that first and foremost, what does the consumer expect and then secondly, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, is that I would say that, you know, if, if you are a brand selling direct and channel conflict is, um, you know, is a concern to build the best possible consumer experience where you can showcase the, the brand in the manner that you want it intended. And that's including, you know, telling stories that that build enthusiasts and, and get people to come back and really live the brand and also help justify, Scott talked about price points, you know, use use those brand stories and the content and your, you know, retail experience to help justify full price sales. And then thirdly, I would say based on that, right, based on the first two, so consumer, you know, great, create a flagship vision of what the brand should be. So the consumer has an understanding of, of, you know, what that brand is, what that flagship experience is. And then if possible, you know, segment that product line. Um, so you have some healthy differentiation between channels. So it's not just, I can get the same pair of Vans shoes and, you know, in journeys in a van store and at Nordstrom. Right. So I feel like if you do those, those are the kind of, there's a lot of things that fall under that, but if you do those three things, well, it's that old saying that rising tides, tides will raise all ships. Interesting. The, um, so when, a so you, let's say a brand goes direct and one of the wholesale partners kind of, you know, calls and says, what's going on? What, how, how do you explain that? Is it kind of, we're just kind of doing the best thing for the customer or, you know, is it the rising tide kind of thing or, or how, how does someone yeah, answer that? It's both. It's, um, you know, it's a really good question. So we, we do, we do, there's other things we do. So if we are, um, if we are before I'll answer your question specifically, but I, 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 if we're out of stock on something, we, we are not on all of our sites, but on some of our sites, we'll link out to a dealer. So if it's not available, you know, we would link to a dealer and that's how we launched. That's how we launched the business. So there is that element of, um, of some sort of connectivity there. If, um, with key partners, we will, you know, share some high level data, things like, you know, what people are searching for, 
uh, what's selling well um, with their merchants to help them put a more informed buy together, which ultimately we think is a better overall brand and consumer experience. But I think going back to the point, if, if even though we're offering those things and if a, if a wholesale partner is upset, um, you know, we do go back to what the consumer's expectations are. So, um, like I said, we, it's important for us to win in all channels and we, we work really, we have great relationships with our wholesale partners. We share, we share appropriate amount of data with them. We'll link out where possible. Um, you know, we provide a point of view on, um, you know, how the brand, you know, what, what resonates with the consumer on our site from a content standpoint. And we share certain pieces of content with our wholesale partners as well. But ultimately it comes down to the consumer has a choice and the consumer can buy, we should be, we should be available wherever the consumer expects us to be available. And if the consumer chooses to buy directly from, um, you know, Timberland.com or, or Lucy.com um, instead of, um, you know, at REI, then as a call out to Brad there, um, then, then that's the consumer ultimately picks. That's, that's would be, that would be my, my point of view on that. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Customers first, kind of a Customers old, first. old chestnut there. Um, yeah. So, so you, you've kind of hit on this. We talked a little bit about in the Amazon and, and you just touched on it a little bit, but um, when I talk to brands, this, this whole topic of map pricing comes up and, and I'm not as familiar if it's as big a deal in the apparel. I know it is with electronics and computers and a lot of uh, sporting goods and, um, do, is that something that, that you guys kind of uh, prioritize and how do you manage it? And I know there's all these systems out there for, you know, seeing who is, who is an authorized reseller and who is breaking map and, and, you know, kind of deauthorizing them if they get certain number of strikes and all this kind of stuff. So just curious how you guys think about that and um, yeah, across the portfolio. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and that's a, um, it is, it is a, it is a big deal in, in apparel as well. Um, so, and it's, and to your, I think if you want, it's, it's related, it's also, you know, quite similar to, to channel conflict and that discussion that we talked about. I think map pricing is really important for a healthy ecosystem online. Um, you know, there's, from a branding standpoint, it's, I think it's really important for brand image and it forces retailers to focus on great consumer experiences and not solely winning on offering the lowest price. One of the, one of my, my pet peeves is that, um, you know, looking back at, and I hope I don't offend anyone when I start talking about these things, but when I look back at some of the digital quote unquote innovations in these selling models, they're really just veiled discounts, right? So flash sale sites, um, you know, great brands at half off. Well, I feel like, you know what, like I could do that too, right? I could get great brands and sell at half off and be successful, but that's really not an innovation to me. Um, so what I like about, what I like about map pricing is that it, 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 one, one, the brand, right. It's important for the brand. It levels the playing field and it really forces consumers. If you're going to win the consumer, then, then that means you have to provide a great consumer experience. And, um, you know, a great consumer experience means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To some people, it's, it's visibility into when their order will ship to other people. It's, you know, click and collect. There's a lot of different things there. And I think that, that, um, if we can level the playing field or, or I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but if we can, if we can have, if we can still map pricing, um, then that would allow for, you know, consumers to, fo- or to retailers to focus on just creating a really, really great retail experience, um, driven by, driven by what the consumer wants. Yeah. Well, one thing uh, I'm kind of picking up that I'll just inject here is you, you talk a lot about those brand stories and content. Um, it seems to be a huge focus for, for the portfolio is, is that, you know, it, it seems to me that would be pretty expensive and, and like what what are some of those things that work really well are these 
are these videos? Are they, you know, three page vignettes? Like what, what's kind of cutting edge and content that, that you're seeing? Cause it seems like you guys are, are way out on the, the leading edge of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, there's, there's tried and true. So there's everything from multiple product images, um, you know, detailed product shots that show what fit looks like all the way through to, um, you know, to, to quite honestly, to virtual reality. Um, but in between it's, it's not just the, the type of content. So as an example of video, right? Video is great. Um, it's not just that we have video, it's how we execute. So it's, the right length video in the right spot. So we want, what we want to do is while we have all this content and we want to create these great consumer experiences, we don't want to distract someone from making a purchase. Um, we want to use content to aid in conversion. So, you know, maybe a 15 second video on a product detail page um, doesn't have to be Oscar worthy. Um, it can be something we can turn around quick, but it could show either some of the benefits of the product. It could show um, appropriate use of that product. Um, and then as you start to kind of go up the um, kind of up the content funnel. It's, it's really, really rich imagery. It's, it's um, great, great high quality video. One of the advantages that we have, and I'll, I'll talk about North Face and Vans because I feel like they do it the best is that, you know, part of the brand, you know, the North Face brand, we send people to these great places and the exploration is, is great. We send, we, we've been to the top of Everest more than, than anyone else. Well, these athletes are not only talented and gifted athletically, they're also incredibly um, gifted when it comes to art and photography. So as an advantage, we have some of the best, I think our photography library is the best in the world. Um, so we have great images that gives us a, a really strong competitive advantage around using our own platforms to tell our stories, but also scaling that content um, out to social um, and, and different, you know, different lengths, uh, depending on social channel. Um, YouTube is a huge, is a huge awareness and a huge channel for us as well. And the same applies. It well, it's similar anyway for Vans. I mean, Vans, um, you know, Vans is, you know, the, a lot of people could learn a lot from how Vans approaches, um, you know, connecting with consumers and using content, you know, Vans is, is not only are there great skate and surf, but, the art and the culture side of things from Vans, they really do speak to the mindset of the consumer versus talking to, you know, like Jason's son someday is probably going to want to skateboard. Right. And, and the way Vans would approach it is, you know, Vans isn't going to talk to Jason's son individually. They're going to talk about to his mindset. Right. So he lives in Chicago. He may not be, you know, he may not have access to waves, but, but if they're into surf, like reef is an example, reef will speak to the, to that consumer mindset. And that's a great, um, that's a great way that we used content to appeal from everything from a demand generation standpoint. So top of the funnel all the way down through to helping with um, that conversion and getting that person to become a, a loyalist for life. Very cool. And for the record, I'm going to be making my son watch fast times at Ridgemont high over and over again. So I think we... <laughs> that's right. The checkerboard, the checkerboard vans. Right. That was it, a that was a breakthrough. That was a breakthrough moment for the brand. So when you have these story brands that you know are super valuable, I imagine one of the things that has to be really frustrating is that it's now pretty easy to knock you off. And <laughs> I know counterfeits is a pretty big uh, topic of conversation in in your industry. Uh, did you see the the Jack Ma interview this week? Yeah, yeah. I don't. He didn't do himself any favors. Um, no. So just for listeners, 
Alibaba has this love-hate relationship with counterfeiters. Lots of brands accuse them of being very friendly to selling counterfeits. And at various times, it feels like Alibaba is not very sensitive to those complaints. And then at other times, it feels like there's there's a lot of collaboration between brands and Alibaba to, to try to clean it up. And so uh, this week in an event, uh, Jack Ma was talking about their efforts to fight counterfeits and he made the point that the counterfeits are so good right now that they're really just as good as the original products. And it, <laughs> and I, I think he was trying to make a point about how they're fighting counterfeits, but it really came off as sort of an endorsement of counterfeit products, which I'm sure wasn't appreciated by many of his brand partners. No, no, absolutely. I did not, it did not come across well. I, you know, I do, I always feel for people who are in the, in the public spotlight and have to give, um, you know, have to be on their toes and ask, you know, answer questions. And, uh, and so I give them a little bit of leeway, but that was, that was a pretty rough one. That was tough. So that sort of antidote aside, what is the status of counterfeits? Like, are we going to have holograms on all the VF products in the future? Does it give you pause about selling on Tmall and places like that? Or what's the status of counterfeit in VF? Yeah, I mean it's a it's an industry it's it's an industry wide it's that's to your point. I mean it's an industry wide problem. We still sell on the Alibaba properties. It's um you know as a percentage of our business as a percentage of everyone's business in China. It's it's the larger part of their of their business. So we still do that. I think the easiest way for me to describe it is that um you know VF has we have a very sophisticated and detailed approach, and that includes not only um, preventing counterfeits. So I'm gonna cryptically, but you'll be able to put two and two together. So not only preventing counterfeits from happening, but also ensuring that the items you buy can be verified as authentic, right? And that's that's important. I think that's important for a couple of reasons, right? Um, again, I'm going to go back to the consumer. Going back to the consumer, we want to we want to um, we want the consumer to know that they are spending you know three hundred dollars on a pair or on a on a pair of North Face boots or 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 um, you know a Gore-Tex jacket or really any of our brands, if they want that authentic brand experience that they are buying an authentic item. Um, so I'll leave, I'll leave the VF, the VF part of that, that that's a, it's a big part of, of, of what they do. And, and like I said, broken into those kind of two areas. I'll tell you though, from a, from a, um, you know, from someone who's been at a brand for, you know, a long time and multiple brands at a long time, I think about it kind of two ways. Um, you know, the first one is that, you know, there, there are, there are going to be people who, who know they're buying counterfeit, right? And that's a bummer. That stinks, right? They're buying counterfeit, but it, to me, it's not as damaging as the people who don't know they're buying counterfeit. So the people who don't know they're buying a counterfeit item, you know, that fit isn't, regardless of what Jack Ma says, that fit isn't going to be the same and the jacket or the item um, isn't going to perform to the level um, that it was, um, you know, built to. And I think that has a really negative impact on um, on the brand and that, you know, people people talk. Right. So you, you lose one consumer um, and they're going to talk to, you know, seven of their friends about how bad that experience was. So those are the things that um, I think really speaks to the importance of, you know, all all brands, um, you know, all brands trying to take care of of this this issue with counterfeit goods. Yep. And I, I know that it can be frustrating. One of the, the stories you hear that's, I guess, somewhat ironic is when you don't have a business relationship at all with some of the retail partners that have the biggest fraud problems, they're less motivated to help you with your problems. So sort of ironically, that sometimes is a reason to do business with Alibaba or Amazon or eBay is once you have that business relationship, you might have more leverage to get that retailer to, to help you fight the problem. 
Mm-hmm. No, that's true. That's true. And there are, there, it's, the, it's the classic line of strength in numbers, right? Yep. I'm not sure the industry has, has uh, solved that particular conundrum yet, uh, but it's going to be interesting to see some of the technology coming down the pipe uh, that I know uh, brands are interested in deploying to sort of help combat it. Yeah, I, we had a, um, you know, just came to my mind, we had a last week here on campus, we had some executive MBA students from China here, and I participated in multiple roundtables with them. And in between the different topics, multiple multiple students would come up to me with their phone and show me, you know, some of our products. And they said, is this real? Right. They would ask if this is real. And I said, I, I said, I don't know. I, I can't tell. I, they said, well, is it the right price? And it's interesting that if they're asking that, then you wonder um, if that will help correct it in the future. Right. So if enough consumers speak up to say, you know, we're going to we're going to vote with our wallet and we're not going to buy from from Tmall or Taobao or JD or any of the any of the sites there that potentially would have counterfeit goods. You wonder if that's if that's how things are going to get cleaned up, because going back to the comment about strength in numbers, you know, retailers are powerful and, and we can, you know, we can flex our muscles, but no one, no one's muscles are as, as big as the consumers are. And, and ultimately when they, they vote to where to buy. Yep. And I, I guess the other side of this, that's getting a little more interesting is you know, we're seeing a lot more traction in what some people call re-commerce, which are, you know, these third parties that get in the business of selling used product. And obviously you have a lot of highly durable goods that would st- still be, coveted and valuable to a second owner. And then the whole issue of verifying the validity of the products comes up again, right? Because these are people that are willing to buy a used jacket, but they want to buy an authentic North Face used jacket. And so you have an internal function to try to figure out if something's counterfeit or not. I've I've seen some brands need to make that public facing to help consumers verify products before they purchase them. That's a great point. And there's a, you know, there's a green play in here too, a sustainability play where the re-commerce, I think as a, as a fan of sustainability is, I think there's a lot of value to that. Um, going back to that, I just was thinking about this, going back to that counterfeit, that counterfeit item, depending on, again, uh, depending on how it was made, there's a lot that goes into um, our, all of our products, not just North Face, but all of our products as it comes to the types of dye we use, the types of materials we use, um, you know, recycled content that really speaks to a, a sustainability play. Um, it's, a, it's a huge initiative here at VF. I don't, if I have to be self-critical of, of us, I don't think we do a good enough job of speaking out to the consumer about all of the efforts that we have in place around sustainability. But I can tell you, if you ever spend even a day in our office, um, have you, I don't think you've been to our campus yet here in Alameda. Um, we're fully, fully sustainable. So we are off the grid, quote unquote. We have, uh, we generate about 115% of the power that we use. So we actually give, give power back. We have um, solar all over the roof and over the, the, the car park, as well as windmills. Quick side note on that, but going back to the actual product, it, the product creation itself, there's a ton of chemicals that get put into products. And we do, a, I think we do a really good job of, of kind of stripping those harmful chemicals out. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of water to make jeans um, and to make denim. And, um, and I think we do, a, we do a great job there. Um, so you want to talk about the, the unintended consequences of, of counterfeits. You could add up, you know, environmentally unstable to that one. Yeah. I should point out that while it's super cool that you guys have made so much progress on the environmental friendly front, it's almost unfair because you could really just plug batteries into all the 
the elliptical trainers and treadmills at, at VF's corporate headquarters and you would be net energy positive, right? Because it seems like everyone there is super fit. It's true. Yes. And uh, it's, uh, it's don't book a meeting at lunchtime because people are out running and um, we have classes. We have a, a mountain athletics field here where people do all sorts of crazy cross training and we have yoga classes and we have a great um, fitness facility that overlooks the bay. So you can actually, we're, we're situated kind of perfectly in between Oakland airport where the planes take off uh, and land. And then if you look out straight, you can see the planes come in from in the morning, you can see them come in from, um, um, come in from Asia and Europe. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Nice. I want to change topics for a second though, because I know you guys also spend some energy on being first movers and don't appear to be afraid to try some new technologies. So there's a couple of things I know that you guys are on the bleeding edge of, and I, I wanted to, to hear a little bit about how that's going. Uh, the first one that comes to mind for me is, I think you guys have the very first shopping experience that's powered by Watson. Yes. Yes, we do. And, um, and thank you for bringing that up. So Watson has been, artificial intelligence has been, has been fun. So, um, you know, you have very intelligent, you know, listeners to your show. I think anyone can say if you're a Star Wars and Game of Thrones fan that you grew up thinking about robots and, and what could be in the future. So this is the first opportunity that I've ever had to, to kind of take something like that and work on it. Um, and, and it's, it's neat. It's very cool. Uh, I would tell you from, um, from a technology standpoint, it's very much in its infancy. We have our, our, our leader of North Face, the way she describes it. I think she describes it as Watson's about a third grader now. Um, it started off as a kindergartner. It's about a third grader. So it's continuing to learn, but it gets better and better um, based on, you know, how consumers interact with it. One of the, some of the things that we find from, um, you know, surveys that we've done with consumers is that they really like using it, right? There's a novelty component to it. Um, our president, our North Face president was on a TV commercial. I don't know if you saw that, um, but he was on a TV commercial with Watson, which was, which was pretty cool. Um, so we have it. It's front and center on our site. We use it to um, really kind of give the consumer a new experience and, um, you know, based on, you know, based on what they're, where they're going or, or what they're looking to do, Watson will make an intelligent recommendation on the item and without giving away, um, you know, the, the, the KPIs and the metrics that we've established for success, we're really happy with, with how it's, how it's come across so far. So we'll see how it goes. We're continuing to learn. Um, we have some, um, you know, having, having AI on your, in your digital experience, when you have these, we do blue sky lunches on my team where we talk anything's on the table, any recommendation or any, any type of ideas on the table. And when you have in your stable, um, you have artificial intelligence, some of the, some of the discussions get, um, pretty far out and pretty cool, but also even though they're far out, they're still, um, you know, with the power of artificial intelligence, they're still pretty achievable. So we're excited to be a first mover on that one. Um, we're also excited to see how it evolves in kind of a version two. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me, obviously, cognitive computing and product recommendations and predictive behaviors and all those things going to be a super interesting part of the future of commerce. But whether Watson today can make a way more insightful recommendation than a great salesperson or not, it just feels really smart to me that you guys are early piloters of the technology. So I, I imagine that A, 
you didn't pay full retail price for all that IBM technology that that IBM probably was was happy to co-invest with you. Uh, they, you've generated a ton of PR up to and including a national television campaign with IBM. Yeah. Um, you're, you're learning about a lot about what consumers like and don't like in the experience. To me, it feels like it's a can't lose kind of thing that more, more brands would be smart to do. But I, I look at the experience that Watson gives today. I'm saying Watson, but plug in any, any cognitive computing engine you want. You had experts that were recommending apparel prior to cognitive computing and you had like really good product finders prior to cognitive computing. And so I, I imagine that you have data and you can say, Hey, two years ago, someone answered these four questions and we recommended this particular skew. And Mm -hmm. two years later, a different consumer answered those same four questions and we recommended the same skew, but now it comes with a a brand that is recommended by Watson, I'm actually guessing that because the recommendation came from Watson, it actually sells better than the same recommendation did when it was unbranded a couple of years ago. Um, you could, you could make that assumption. You could make that assumption. You could also make the assumption that um, with the scale of that site and the amount of people who come to it, some people would rather hear from a trusted human and other people would rather hear from a really smart robot without, without going into too much detail. So I think to your point, there's like, there's a couple things I want to say. So to your point, um, you know, the, the data that we're able to collect, we, we have a significant advantage. Um, you know, when I worked at North Face, um, you know, I love North Face and I, I was, it was a brand that I've, I always grew up. I mean, I, was, I love skiing. I love mountain biking. I was so excited to work there. And I was nervous about leaving North Face to work for VF and not having that ownership of, Hey, I work at North Face now, and that, but now I work at VF, but the, it's been, it's been great because we have so much data that we're able to collect across all of our brands. So we collect all of our data across all of our brands. And then what we are able to do, because we have 30 brands and we're in 150 countries, is that we can look at creating a benchmark. So we've created a benchmark about how our brands perform against a VF benchmark, as well as any third-party benchmark that we can get from Forrester or eMarketer or, or, or the two of you when, you when you provide those benchmarks to us. So we, we have some advantages of comparing it. We're looking at um, Watts in the same way. So we'll look at all the data that we have, what's working and who's engaging with it. And now we have this, this great AI tool that will help us, um, you know, make, hopefully make smarter decisions um, with how we engage with consumers, especially since consumers have so much choice now, not between, not just between channels of where they buy our product, but where they buy, um, you know, our competitive product as well. We want to be able to, to capture that, capture that opportunity when they're with us and, and really delight them and, and, and get them to come back. That makes perfect sense. I, w- I want to switch to another piece of technology that gets a lot of buzz. There was a big announcement from Apple this week that Apple Pay will now be supported inside of the Safari browser. And so that's a, a pretty big change. It, it used to be that you could use Apple Pay in a store or you could use it in a mobile app, but you couldn't use it on the mobile web where the majority of uh digital sales actually happen. And so now for the first time, we're going to have the ability to let people check out from a North Face webpage, for example, using Apple Pay. And I made a tweet about that and you quickly responded and mentioned that uh, VF was uh, already in process of implementing that and was going to be a an early adopter of, of that as well. 
Yes. So we, we are. And, um, I, my feelings were a tiny bit hurt when, when I saw you mentioned, I think you mentioned 1-800-Flowers and, and some others and didn't mention us. So I was quick to put a picture up. Little did I know that they didn't mention that the launch partners, there are about a hundred of them, <laughs> but, um, so, uh, we, we do. And there's a couple things that we look at one, anything, anything that we can do to, again, to, to give the consumer choice and, and to help solve problems and make life easier from a shopping standpoint, or, you know, assist in reducing friction, all the buzzwords that, that everyone talks about, we're, we're there. We also, um, you know, candidly look at things like that as a challenge to ourselves to be able to turn it around. So um, I head up a digital team for VF. We over we were responsible for for digital. We work with all of our brands. Um, you know, we also benchmark our own capabilities. Like, hey, you know, can we do this? So we're looking at it right now. We're we're assigned in to be a launch partner. Um, we're currently. I just actually right before this call, we had a meeting to talk about it. Um, one of the things that that feels kind of feels goofy to me is the timing of it. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of right right on the right on the beginning of back to school. Um, so, you know, those, it'll be interesting to see how many retailers implement right away or they wait, maybe wait till, till Q1. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're right there. We look at it as a benefit from the benefit to the consumer, but also we like to, we're, we're all really competitive here on, on our team and we all want to, we all want to be able to, to do some great things. So we look at, can, do we have the ability with our, with our really lean digital central team to turn something like this around? Cool. Since you have a so such a big portfolio of brands, do you guys like run the e-commerce operations for them all? How like how far do you cut across those brands, kind of horizontally? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's a great question. So um, the the easiest way to for me to describe it is we are um, we are not responsible for any one individual business. So we don't run um, splendid.com. We don't run Lee or wrangler.com. We don't run North face. We don't run these individual businesses, but we're accountable for their performance. So it's kind of like a CPG model. And that, um, that requires us to be on our game. So we need to, when we work with the brands to be able to offer, you know, insights on, um, everything from solving problems to, bringing new capabilities above and beyond what they're planning to do to drive incremental revenue to introducing new technology, like, um, you know, all the technologies that like Apple pay to a degree, um, you know, it requires us to be able to be um, grounded in the data, grounded in what best practice is um, and offer value to the brands without creating more work. That's, that's the, the, probably the best way we approach it. But it goes, it's, it's much, like I said, it's, we, we, we tend to talk about, um, you know, commerce and conversion because it's really important, but we also, um, you know, we also spend a lot of time trying to, um, you know, engage, engage consumers outside of the traditional channels in which we sell because digital is so big. I, I often, I, you know, I talked to the, we have these blue sky lunches, which I talked about, but I often talk to the team and I said, you know, if we only look at digital as a, as a channel to drive sales, immediate sales that we can track, I don't think we're taking full advantage of the power of it. Um, so how that translates is, is kind of up to us. It's kind of up to, to you guys as well as, as how digital evolves. Um, but, but that's, that's, I feel like that's the approach we take. We're, we're very much, I was on the brand side for almost six years. So I, I have that understanding of, of how busy it is at the brand's and how much work they have. So, um, you know, I'm very sensitive to being able to, to, to go in and, and try to offer help without adding more work. It's probably the, the best, easiest way to describe it. 
Got it. Um, earlier you said two magic words, virtual reality. And I just wanted to kind of briefly, what, what are you guys up to there and, and how do you, how do you think about it? Yeah. So, um, that was a pretty fun one. So virtual reality right now, um, we have it in three stores. We have it for, we do it for the North Face brand and we have it in three stores. We have it in Chicago. Uh, we have it in New York and we have it in Palo Alto. And um, the way we look at it now is we have some content. We have content from three locations. We have content from um, Moab um, in Utah. We have content um, from Nepal, so where, where Mount Everest is. And we have content from Yosemite National Park, which is super hallowed ground near and dear to the North Face brand. I mean, if you look at the North Face logo, that, that the, the half dome after the the text is the actual half dome from, from Yosemite. So um, really sacred ground for us. So we have content that we've, we've partnered with some, some people and we have a Oculus Rift that we use in store. And the goal there is to really inspire people to get outside. So those are three places you've probably been to Yosemite, but you may not have been to Moab and most likely you're, you're never going to go to Nepal. Um, so it's a way of, in some ways, it's another way of storytelling. Um, in some ways it's another way going back, Scott, to what you said earlier about the importance of content. In some ways it's another channel for us or another platform for us to, to show about content, but ultimately what it is, is it's our ability. It's, it's a desire for us to inspire people to get outside and explore. Um, you know, I read virtually everything that Jason writes, um, even his tweets. And he often talks about the importance of creating great experiences in store and starting to create a, you know, it's this, it's the importance of the experience. And we feel like this is another thing that we're testing out that would help with that, that experience in store. Got it. Cool. Well, um, we're up against time, but I did want to get one personal thing in. Um, I mentioned at the top of the show, you're a game, a fellow Game of Thrones. It's hard to talk about that because not everyone's current, but um, super high level. Are you enjoying the current season? Uh, it's my so far to date. It's my favorite season. It, it's been I think it's been fantastic. Yeah, I would love to talk about it, too. But I, I understand we have people here in the office too who are not caught up yet. Yeah. And then on Star Wars, I'm first of all, I'm a fan of the Vans Star Wars connection. I don't know if you had a role in that at all, but that's uh, that's awesome. I have many of those in my collection now. So thanks for uh, helping me spend some dollars there. Uh, and then uh, this one, I think is pretty safe. I think everyone on the planet has seen Force Awakens at least once, if not twice. So what did you think about that? Um, I loved it. And um, so I have uh, I have three kids. I have two girls and a boy. And it was um unexpected for me to watch the movie and see my oldest relate to star Wars the same way I related to it as a kid and kudos to Daisy Ridley. She was amazing. I thought, um, but I loved it. And, and I've read some of the criticisms about it, that it was basically uh, a new hope all over again, but it was kind of like Listerine to the first, um, you know, the, the, the prequels and the bad taste that left in my mouth. I, I thought it was, I thought it was amazing. I can't wait for the next one. And the Rogue one trailer looks really good too. I'm impressed with that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I wish we could uh, talk a lot more about this stuff, but uh, we'll have to save that for the next board meeting that we're at. Exactly. <laughs> and Scott, that's of course, because once again, we've used a perfectly good hour of our listeners time. So Greg, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight and give us a little taste of what's going on in your world. We certainly appreciate your insights. As a reminder to our listeners, we'd love to read your review on iTunes, and we'd love to see your comments on our official Jason and Scott Show 
Facebook page. So until next week, I'd love to wish all the listeners a happy commercing. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 